Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 191, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, while we may be witnessing the most momentous case in more than five decades involving student speech, and are states throwing school districts under the bus when it comes to mask policies and guidelines? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, some shifts you can make to improve special education. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I cannot complain. It's uh, another beautiful day in the neighborhood uh, over here in South Beautiful day in the neighborhood. I'm excited about the month of May. Yeah. You know, it, for those that don't live in the South, like we're in that good period still where things aren't miserable yet. But give us another month and, and the temperatures <laughs> will be mid 90s and humidity will be through the roof and all things will be down the drain by that point in time. That is true. But we are rounding out a school year that we've endured during a pandemic. And I think my mind is a little blown that it's the beginning of May and we've made it this far. Those of us in the South, we've been in school the entire time. And And so, you know, our experiences is grand, you know, very different from um, a lot of our friends in the North, but rounding out a school year in a pandemic with COVID protocols, um, teaching children in a very different way than many of our teachers ever have. And then right now we're in the midst of state testing after a very different um, instructional environment and we're going to make it. And it's teacher appreciation week. Well, and the teachers need to be appreciated for being so brave uh, and being back in the classroom for gosh, like you said, down here in the South, much of the year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I have flip flopped a little bit uh, on my opinion on whether or not we should have gone back to school. I would say I was a little bit more cautious at first. And I was like, I don't know, I think we're doing this too early. And maybe we did. But saying all that, I know that the the mental health of my kids has been probably in a lot better place than some other kids who maybe were virtual all year long. So for that reason, I have to say I'm glad we were back in school f- as much as possible, hybrid and taking little breaks here. Yeah. And there, you know, so I remember last spring when we didn't really know what was to come, and I I remember it was hard for my son by the end of April. Um, only you know six weeks, maybe less include seven if you include that week of spring break. It began to take a toll on him. He 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 was frustrated and and lonely, and he missed his friends. And he's been virtual this entire year, um, but because he's an athlete, right. he does make it to the campus later in the afternoon. And it has you know completely changed him. Um, we've talked about it, and he wants to go back face to face for next school year. And so we will see. 
Right. No doubt. I mean, just being around people a little bit does so much for your well-being. You know, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm back in the gym. And that, oh, that's awesome. That little time that I'm there and just kind of like, you know, not even really interacting with people, but just like, you know, hey, how you doing? Or a little small talk mm-hmm. here and there. It, it goes a, a little long normalcy. Way. Yeah. yeah, it goes a long way. Um, gosh, there was an interesting Supreme Court case uh, recently that we need to talk about because I don't know that if you and I are going to agree on this. Um, on the way it should be ruled on or not. So I'm curious to kind of see where you fall and where I fall. Um, and I'll, I'll bring everybody up to speed just in case that they missed this. But um, this is a case that was brought by a 14-year-old high school cheerleader, uh, Brandy Levy. And uh, at the time, she was a freshman on the junior varsity cheerleading team. And she failed to win a spot as a varsity cheerleader for the following year. And she also apparently failed to get a position that she wanted on the softball team, kind of like all around the same time. So that weekend, um, she was frustrated and upset, and she took a picture of herself and a friend flipping the bird to a camera, and she typed the words um, kind of at the center of this like thing that she was going to post on Snapchat. It said, F school, and except spelled it out, uh, F softball, F cheerleading, F everything. And so she posted that on Snapchat. And, you know, she had 250 friends. And um, I think she expected everyone to see it. But what she didn't expect was the school to actually suspend her over this. Turns out that um, one of the Snapchat followers uh, was the daughter of the team coach of the cheerleading team. So the school found out about it and they decided to suspend her. And it kind of goes back to that whole idea of, you know, do students have free speech um, when they're being disruptive in the classroom? And there's already been a Supreme Court ruling about that, right? Like, if you're disrupting the classroom, you, your your free speech stops there. But mm-hmm. this happened outside of the classroom. So now it's back up to the Supreme Court. So does she have that free speech if it's disruptive, if it took place, you know, when we weren't and the kids weren't in school? Are you, are you keeping We're up using with me? keywords of um, free speech. But I'd be inclined to take a look at board policy. Um, As I listened to you, I did not know the full details of what she shared uh, online. That can be taken as a threat. And I think in the times that we're living in and some of the incidents that have taken place um, on school campuses, that may have been what went through um, administration's mind. Like this is aggressive. Um, This is a former athlete since she was on the junior varsity team. Um, She singled out specific teams, which include other students. Uh, Well, she said, but but her argument is, and other courts have agreed, that she didn't specifically target anyone. While I get that, she specifically targeted teams at her local high school where students make up the team. And so what message is she sending and what message would the school send if nothing at all was done about it? So I am interested to hear the final decisions from the Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, um, I'm concerned about this child to feel she needed to go on a rant. What if she'd made the team and someone else had not? How would she feel about their comments? Um, I'm sure some of these young ladies on the teams, the different teams, um, used to be her teammates, some of them maybe even her friends. And I think it's a bit extreme, but we're in that society where a lot of our kids, a lot of young people in general, um, feel entitled and feel that we owe them something. Mm-hmm. So 
it's going to be interesting how this plays out because as i said it's kind of made it all the way up to the supreme court because apparently other courts have ruled that that she does have that free speech power because Mm -hmm. it did not happen in school and the school cannot regulate that um and you know they've already had arguments in the supreme court but no ruling has been made so i'm interested in the ruling because it's going to greatly impact our decision making in the future and again i'm sure the principal well i would hope that the principal communicated with higher up, whether it's an assistant superintendent or superintendent. Um, I'm hoping that they, you know, um, had a conversation with the board attorney to make sure that they were within policy, which is why policy was the first thing that I brought up. Mm-hmm. But here is a mistake that we can make as school administrators. If there's no such policy in place, then you do put yourself at risk for setting a precedent Um, and having your decision challenged. And sometimes the challenges are good for both sides because it opens up something that we may not have ever thought would occur and allows you to create a board policy in the future. Mm. But at at the end of the day, I mean, does board policy hold anything if if the Supreme Court says you have the right to say that it's free speech? I mean, it it, it didn't happen in school. The board doesn't regulate what you do on the internet. I don't know how to answer that because right now I'm not sure if that school district had a policy in place that that led them to believe they were within grounds. If they didn't have a policy, um, but yet they still stuck to their guns about the suspension, then, you know, I can see why it went all the way up to the top. And I would really be inclined to know how her parents felt, what they had to say. I am probably on the other side for you. I feel like she does have the right to say this. It did not happen in school. You cannot regulate it as mm-hmm. long as and, and really the fine line is, was she threatening a person or not? And so I think that's that's where you could have some debate. But if you determine that she wasn't so if not a suspension what stance are they recommending schools take i don't think because i I, I wouldn't want to see her at a softball game i wouldn't want to see her where the cheerleaders have to perform and then now perhaps they feel uncomfortable i I don't think you can take a stance and that's 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 why a yale law professor uh justin driver says quote this is the most momentous case in more hmm. than five decades involving student speech. So like this is, yes, this is definitely this is a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, so it, it's going to be really interesting. Now, I don't, I, I wish I had pulled up the, the proper article. I had one where I was kind of reading through some of the questions that some of the justices were asking the attorneys. And I'll tell you this from what I read, if you were just reading into their questioning, that they are leaning towards the favor of the student saying like how how can you do this how can you draw a line it's kind of back to what you were saying like they're questioning what are the rules how do we draw this line outside of school and then like you said what what do you do going forward i mean so now basically a student can say whatever Mm -hmm. they want about the school on social media right and will there be parameters are they going to define what is allowed and what is not so this is this is a big deal yeah and so typically i see more happening And typically, a court will never define anything, right? They leave that up to Mm -hmm. the lawmakers, and then the judges just decide whether or not things are working with inside those rules that that are now laws. So uh, I don't think we're going to see anything going forward that's going to really make things clear, but it certainly will say what students' free speech is. So this is, again, momentous case, uh, one worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Switching gears, uh, there was another thing that kind of came to the forefront of my mind as um, many states are starting to lift 
their mask mandates and their, and their rules um, here in the state of Mississippi. Uh, I think basically we've listed, lifted all mask mandates with the exception of schools. I was reading over in Ed Week, several states, including Alabama, Arkansas, Kansas, and Texas, have rolled back their masking requirements, putting superintendents and school boards once again on the hot seat on a question that at least politically feels unwinnable. So my question to you is, are schools about to be in a really tough position in terms of being the bad guy, the heavy to say, no, you still have to wear a mask at school. I would say yes. Um, right now, most schools are still requiring masks. They have not lifted up. Even when the mandate was lifted, one thing that I I noticed uh, within the next day or two after that, many school districts were putting out notices that they were still requiring masks, um, sending out messages to parents, to, you know, while you may not need it in public, your child will still need it to enter our campus. But as we round out the school year and think about um, any changes or procedures we're going to put in place for August, I suspect that there are going to be some school districts to drop the mandate. And I think it has to do with ge- geographical location. Yeah, it does seem that way. Now, I received a um, a Facebook group request, like, come join my group. And it was one of these things where it was basically putting a petition together saying, um, sign up and help us, you know, make the case that masks should be a choice thing for the following school year. And I think, you know, there's parents out there who are just tired of it and they don't want their kids to wear a mask. I, of course, did not like that group. I just was kind of surprised by it. I still feel like schools... I think you need to jump in there so we can know what they're saying. <laughs> right. I can't <laughs> do it. Spy. I can't do it. But it, I mean, we know what they're saying. This is ridiculous. It, we, it's our freedom. We should be able to not have to wear a mask. And I can't help but look back at like where we are with vaccinations. Like the state of Mississippi is one of the strictest states in the country when it comes to vaccinations for school. Like we require all these vaccinations just to be registered. And I kind of see it. What if, what if I said it's my choice whether I was vaccinated or not? And in Mississippi, we say it's not your choice. So I I kind of see this. It's not. So you can homeschool your children then. Right. And I kind of see this in the same line. I'm, I'm not saying that masks should be used next year. I'm saying that the schools will do what's right and they'll make that decision when the time is right. And we have to trust that they're making the best decision that's safest for everybody and, and you know, live by their yeah. rules. That's kind of where I'm at. I agree. I agree. But it's certainly going to be interesting to watch unfold. Um, I would like to think that many school districts are going to stick to the mass mandate if, um, you know, local and state data supports it, regardless of a mandate or not. That's what I believe, because at the end of the day, our number one job is safety. And we're responsible for every child in the building. But as employers, we're also responsible for the safety of our employees. And so we have two things to consider. While parents are just wanting to think about the freedom of their child, we're responsible for X number of children. Right. And I guess I would like to see us in this world um, where... You know, maybe we don't have masks at the start of next year because numbers are low. But if things start to spike, whether it's COVID or it's the flu, like be might, prepared. Be, yeah, yes. it might be, you know, because you might have a large flu outbreak in a school district. Now it's not going to be so weird to say, hey, you know what? We've got the flu spreading through the school yeah. district very quickly. We're going to make a mask mandate for the next two weeks. And but you know what I see happening before a mask mandate because we're equipped, I see schools shutting down and going virtual for a week or two um, to clean out the building and rid of the germs versus just implementing mass mandates. Right. I think that they would switch to that before um, 
making um, an unpopular decision depending on the school district. And I'm just being very honest with you. Yeah. But I mean, I want to say I remember in 2019, we were covering a flu outbreak in Oklahoma that almost shut down or did shut down a whole district up there. And, they did. They closed. And so, yeah, like you said, we're, we're better equipped now. You could go virtual or you could just put a mass mandate quickly in place um, mm-hmm. to kind of try to keep pushing forward. So I, I would just like to say, let's just trust the school districts. I wish that state leaders wouldn't necessarily remove the cover and put all of the the burden of regulating this on districts. I, I hope, I know I it's think we need a whole sometimes. separate um, episode to talk about trusting your school district. Right. Yes, this is true. And we're, we're probably preaching to the choir since we're speaking to a lot of school officials and, and school teachers out there. Well, anyhow, are you uh, ready for the bright idea? I am. Our guest in today's bright idea segment is here to talk about how educators can navigate special education during a pandemic. Nate Levinson is the managing director of the district management group, and he recently released his new book, Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions. Nate, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Um, And it's so exciting to have you. We've been trying to have you on the show for a little while. You now have this new book being released. But before we get into the book, I want to kind of dive into what your world's been like for the past few months, because I've heard from educators that special education during a pandemic has been a big question mark for them. I mean, what type of questions and and consulting have you been dealing with? Sure. You know, I think one of the saddest things about the pandemic is that it has magnified so many of the inequities we had before the pandemic. And kids with special needs, kids with disabilities, they were not doing nearly as well as we wanted. They represent one of the largest achievement gaps um, in the country. And through the pandemic, through the shutdown in the spring, uh, despite heroic efforts by teachers and districts, so no criticism of any person trying, but kids with disabilities uh, really did not thrive in any way, shape, or form, and the gaps got bigger. And so what did you see as a major challenge? I guess the obvious one to me was, I mean, how do you continue special education in this specialized learning remotely. I mean, it looked like teachers were having a tough enough time with with the general population. Well, I think you really, the very way you phrase that question, though, gets at part of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll see probably it in my book. naivete. No, no, no. Everybody thinks that way. But you'll see it in the book as well. If the goal is to serve kids with disabilities well, general education has to be the lead. That is, you know, in, when we were in person, uh, back in the day when kids went into schools, um, the goal is to have general education teachers providing the vast majority of high-quality instruction to students. Now, that doesn't often happen, but when the pandemic came, the split became even greater, and everybody turned to the special ed department and said, what are you going to do for kids with special needs? And many, many of the things they do don't translate at all to a remote setting. So in, in many ways, kids got even less remotely if you had a disability than if you didn't. Let's dive into that a little bit, because I think that is your first shift in your book. There's six shifts that you kind of point to, and it's the fact that there needs to be more general education. And in fact, I think your, your main driving point is the fact that students who are in special education actually end up getting less general ed time mm-hmm. than those that are actually in it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, for make one important distinction, the vast majority of kids with special needs, 85, 90% of them are kids with mild to moderate disabilities. 
Um, there's another group that have more significant needs. Um, but for that 85-90%, um, they are and should be in the gen ed classroom, you know, the vast majority of their day. They need to get high quality instruction from their classroom teacher, from their math teacher, from a reading teacher, because the research is really clear. John Hattie and everybody else says uh, the quality of the teacher is central. And if you're going to teach grade level material, kids have to be in the classroom to be taught that material. But based on our studies across the country, if I'm a student with a disability or even just a student who struggles more broadly, I get less instruction from my classroom teacher than if I didn't struggle. So I'm going to be really clear on this. Imagine a second grader who struggles to read. They get less reading instruction from a certified reading teacher or from a classroom teacher than a student who doesn't struggle. And then we can't be shocked that these kids fall further behind. I guess if we are, if there's anything I am shocked about, it's the fact that that's happening. That just seems like a, a logical, easy fix. Well, here's why. Again, we have only good people trying to do the right stuff. And the theory of action, never written, seldom spoken, but played out in people's decisions every day in public schools, is that if I'm a student with a disability, the theory of action is if I am given help in a really small group, one kids, two kids, three kids, that that would be better than being in a whole class. And the other part of the theory of action is if I am given help by a special educator because I have special needs and they are special educators, that that's the perfect match. And so that would mean that in many schools, more than half in this country, a student who struggles to read with a disability gets pulled out of class when reading is being taught, is put in a group of two or three kids, and is more likely to be taught reading by a paraprofessional rather than a teacher. Because people were thinking that small group mattered more than a large group with a really skilled teacher. But again, John Hattie, What Works Clearinghouse, Gap Closing School District say just the opposite is true. Having great instruction from a highly skilled teacher matters much more than just being two or three kids with a less skilled teacher. You are a uh, former public school superintendent. Um, you work with school districts now. Uh, I know a lot with consulting. You, you've written this book about special education, but you also open up this book kind of telling a personal story. Special education is a personal journey for you, right? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in a time, so I'm an old guy. Um, I grew up before special ed was a law, before we had these rights. And I know firsthand why we need them. I had significant speech and language challenges. Uh, very few people could understand what I said. Um, I talk for a living now. So I owe my very career to um, speech and language pathologists. I also had really significant dysgraphia. People couldn't read what I wrote either. So communication on a lot of fronts was a challenge for me. And it took, but I happened to be really good in math at the same time. And it is only because my mother stormed into schools screamed at principals, screamed at mm. teachers, ultimately drove me 45 minutes, three times a week uh, to get services. Uh, so my school did not help me. Uh, my mother did. And I just happened to have the benefit of a mother who could 
uh, do all those things. So it's nice to see that the laws have shifted and it's a right. Um, but weirdly enough, the right has guaranteed kids services, but it has not guaranteed them effective services. And, and the book really tries to make that shift away from doing a, a lot of stuff to things that really move the needle, raise achievement, prepare kids uh, for success after graduation. So this topic's clearly very important to you. Um, is the target the administrations that make these decisions on special education, or is it the special educator that's on the front lines? I think it's both. Um, and it's the parents as well, because here's what happens, is everybody means well. We have a paradigm of how to support kids with special needs that has not worked. The achievement gap is huge. It's not getting any smaller. Um, as scores have risen for kids without disabilities over the last 20 years, they did not rise for kids with disabilities. So everybody who's sitting around an IEP meeting is fighting for the wrong stuff to go into the IEP. But for the kinds of changes of how schedules are built, who's hired to teach kids with disabilities, um, those kind of changes require superintendents and special ed directors and principals to fund and schedule differently. So a classroom teacher or a special educator on their own, unfortunately, can't implement these changes unless leadership is putting in place the, the infrastructure to do so. And to be really honest, parents need to support this. And when they understand it, they usually love it. They have been incredibly supportive of these changes, but their support is also central to being able to change a system. Back in early May, we did an episode um, about a special education teacher named uh, Conrad Wirt, who was a teacher of the year um, in special ed, but he was actually just a, a, a national type teacher of the year for his, or at least for his district back in 2012. So he clearly was good at what he did, but he also loved music. And a documentary ended up being made about him where he he quit his job as a teacher because he was so burnt out. And he actually went on the road to play his music and talk to the the public and the people who were listening to his songs about the challenges that there are in special education and, and not really having the support system and feeling um, overwhelmed by by everything they face. And I, and I noticed that you talk a little bit about that in your book as well. I mean, what's broken here? Yeah, so there's, it's a major theme of the book is, you know, first and foremost, how do you make things better for kids? But just as importantly is how do you make it better for teachers? Because all 50 states have a shortage of special educators. They are leaving the profession faster than any other role. And on the way out, they tell their friends, don't become a special educator. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. The first is too much of what they're doing isn't working. And that's so frustrating. Second is the special educators know that general education has to be a big part of the solution. And in too many schools, that's not the case. And so they feel like they've been asked to do the impossible. Let's face it, a special educator might have a student for 40 minutes a day and the classroom teacher for six hours. Well, who should have the larger responsibility for helping that student be successful academically? Well, I would say the person who had them for six hours and the special educator is extra to help. But in too often, it's reversed the expectations. And the third thing, 
which I go into a great deal of detail in the book, is the job of a special educator or a school psychologist, um, it's an impossible job. They are asked to do so many things. I call them, the, they're like the decathlon athletes. They've got to do every sport under the sun. Uh, they write IEPs, they do assessments, they teach math and reading and science and social studies, and they write behavior plans. No other educator in a school has to do as much. And so one of the strategies I talk a lot about and, and educators have loved is what we call playing to your strength. If I'm a school psychologist and I'm great at writing IEPs, I do mostly that. If I'm a school psychologist who's great at counseling, I do mostly that. And if I'm a school psychologist who's phenomenal at behavior management, I do mostly that. And letting people specialize um, really improves teacher morale. And then the other idea is we just have too many meetings and too much paperwork. It'll never go to zero. But the average special educator spends more time in meetings and paperwork than with kids. And nobody went to school to do that. And there are very specific strategies that can streamline meetings and paperwork so that teachers can spend much more time with kids, which helps kids. But it also helps the teachers because they're doing more of what they want to be doing. You're almost saying, I guess, if, if just the general ed teacher would take more ownership of those special ed students, we could get pretty far. Is that too harsh to say it that way? Or um, I think it's only half true. And let's also unpack why that might not have happened. Because gen ed teachers care deeply about their kids. Exactly. That's so why I felt I, harsh when I said it. I know, but so I'm going to make, I'm going to clarify it. But it's true that in many schools, gen ed teachers are passing the baton so why do they do that? And, and these are great, caring people. I think they do it for three reasons. One, let's acknowledge that gen ed teachers receive zero training on how to teach kids with disabilities. That is, the, that is the median amount of instruction if you're going through an undergraduate or master's degree program. Yeah, fair point. So why should a classroom teacher think, I know what to do? We didn't teach them that. And they're thinking down the hall are these specialists. They even have special in their name called special educators who know exactly what to do. Right. So step one is you have to have instructional coaching, which can be done by special educators who make great instructional coaches to teach the pedagogy to classroom teachers. How do I as a classroom teacher have the skills to check for understanding, chunk the material, scaffold the instruction. Now, the real win-win here is all those strategies that were great for kids with disabilities happen to be great for everybody else as well. So one is acknowledge classroom teachers don't have the training, and we need to provide it to them through coaching. Second, if you don't provide what we call extra time for instruction to kids who struggle, then it is actually impossible for a classroom teacher to be successful. So again, let's assume I'm a seventh grader who struggles in math. Yes, I want the seventh grade math teacher to have primary responsibility for teaching seventh grade math to kids with disabilities. But you know that student with a disability who's struggling in math, they did not master sixth grade or fifth grade math either. And they may have concepts like multiplying fractions that come back to fifth grade. 
You can't expect that seventh grade teacher to teach seventh grade math and make up all those past skill gaps. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is have a second period. This is what we call, and it's one of the big shifts of adding extra time, not extra adults. There has to be in the schedule a second period where a teacher who is strong in math is teaching all the skills, all the things that that student hadn't learned in years past to catch them up. And when you have that bargain where the math, the first period of math says, I'll teach this year and somebody else will teach prior years, then the classroom teacher says, that's a fair deal. I can hold up my part of that bargain. But if you're going to ask that teacher to do both current year and make up for past stuff, it's an unfair request. And again, the most common response is, oh, let's do co-teaching. Let's do push-in. Let's add a para. All of those strategies don't add an extra minute to teach prior year skill gaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, you mentioned that we've watched special ed change, reform, um, adapt over the past several decades. Is there one particular reform that you've seen in recent years that you feel like that is a huge step in the right direction? That is a win? Yeah, I, I think that, and it's funny, when I first started talking about the things in this book 10 and 12 years ago, and this is a confession, um, a lot of special educators were kind of put off by what I was sharing. Um, I would say in the last five or six years, uh, they have overwhelmingly embraced what's in the book. And, and I think the big shift has been, particularly with a new generation of special education leaders or maybe even veterans who have seen the data, the realization that special ed alone cannot help students with disabilities be successful, that it has to be this special ed, general ed, joint effort that it has to be the principal of the school, the assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction, and the special ed director who leads this effort. And we're the end, so the biggest shift has been this breakdown of a siloed expectation that special ed alone can and should help all of, all of our students with disabilities be successful. And that's been phenomenal and and the places that have broken it down have seen incredible gains. I, you know, uh, districts where, where I was a superintendent, we closed the general ed special ed achievement gap in our high school by almost 40 percentage points, both in English and math. We reduced the number of struggling readers, K-5, by two-thirds. Um, Wyzetta uh, High School got students who had been struggling in math for years embraced the six shifts and saw kids who had never made a year's growth in math make three years worth of growth in math in a single year. And this was that general ed, special ed partnership. Very powerful when you do it. So so speaking of the country as a whole, and I, I know this can be difficult to kind of generalize, but give us a grade on how we're doing with special ed. I, I would assume in the, in the 50s and the 60s, we were getting an F and I'm just guessing you kind of give us a grade for the 80s and the 90s and, <laughs> and how we're doing today. You know, I have never been asked that question and somebody probably should have asked me that question before and I'm going to hang myself on this. Right. I would say an A for effort and a D for outcomes. Today. 
today. Wow. So D for outcomes. So you feel like there's there's got to be a, you know, the efforts there, but there's a lot of room to improve, right? Yes. We are trying so hard, both the hours, the energy, the caring. Again, back in my day when I was a, a young child, we did not care. So we got a, an F for effort and an F for outcomes. Um, people are doing everything they know to help kids with disabilities succeed. Um, but the, the achievement gaps are just huge. Uh, only 20% of kids with disabilities will go off to college. There aren't that many middle-class jobs, sustainable wages that have no college behind them. Um, we have created a system that relies on paraprofessionals to help kids get through school, but it doesn't help you get through life. Yeah, I, I think the reason the book is so important is that fundamentally we are getting an A for effort, uh, but the outcomes are just nothing that we can be comfortable with. And I meet very few people, maybe special ed directors, special ed teachers, or parents who would say, I look at our outcomes and feel good. Maybe your next PowerPoint presentation should be titled A for Effort, D for Outcomes, just to kind of grab people's attention out the gate. Um, uh, again, this is a, a great book. We've talked, I know, about Shift 1 and Shift 2, which special education to general education for more adults to more time. I don't want to give away all the shifts on the show, but I do want to encourage people to check out the book. Again, it's Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions. Uh, and the author is Nathan Levinson or Nate Levinson. Um, we really appreciate you chatting with us about this book. It's a, it's a great tool. Um, if somebody wants to get the book, what's the best way to do that? Uh, Amazon, of course, and Harvard Education Press website as well. Yeah, and I think that's harvardeducationpress.org. Um, Nate, are you ready for our pop quiz? Ready as I'll ever be. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Reading. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Uh, financial literacy. What does every child deserve? Uh, a great education and a great shot at a successful life after graduation. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Acknowledging that what we've done in the past, even though intent, well-intentioned, has not been successful, and therefore we've got to try something different. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, six shifts to improve special education and other interventions, of course. Very good. Uh, which teacher changed your life? And you, you kind of hinted on this earlier on, so I'm curious to hear this answer. I owe everything to a speech and language therapist. Um, I had six years of speech therapy. There was one at the end where it all just clicked. And I went from being very, very hard to understand, very shy as a result, uh, to somebody who talks nonstop to anybody who will listen now. <laughs> and last uh, question, pen or pencil? Uh, pen. Again, Nate Levinson, we really appreciate you taking the time. It's, a, it's an excellent book. And uh, thanks for coming on the Class Dismissed Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at Class Dismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>